Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, and I am your host, Mark Yakano. I have a terrific guest today, Dan Lukasik. He is the Director of Workplace Wellbeing for the Mental Health Association in Buffalo, New York. And he is a true champion and pioneer in the area of mental health, wellness, and fitness for people in the legal profession. And is um, been recognized for starting one of the very first support groups specifically focused on lawyers with depression. Welcome, Dan. Uh, thank you for having me, Mark. It's so great to have a fellow Western New Yorker uh, on this podcast. <laughs> and Dan, you have such a compelling story. I'd like you to maybe start, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, sharing your story and how you morphed into, you know, the role you have as a mental health advocate for the, for the legal profession. Sure. Well, right now I'm 58, and uh, I went to law school about 30 years ago. I grew up in a blue-collar, working-class family, and I wanted to represent uh, working-class people. So uh, I got a job out of law school, represented railroad workers. And my first 10 years was spent mostly in uh, New York City representing Metro North and Long Island Railroad workers. Uh, when I turned about 40, uh, I was managing partner in my litigation firm. Uh, I started having some dramatic uh, symptoms that were different than I'd had before. And like all lawyers, I'd always felt some stress, sometimes high stress, but this was very different. And specifically, three symptoms that bring, bring me uh, to where I'm going to be telling you I actually went was uh, the three symptoms were really a lot of trouble sleeping. Uh, even though I was exhausted all the time, I'd wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning, I just could never fall back to sleep. The second uh, symptom was difficulty concentrating. And this really showed up at work. Uh, for example, if I had a brief or a motion paper due, something that normally took me a week to draft might take me three weeks to get done. So I kept adjourning things, but I was getting further and further behind. And the third symptom was I was sad all the time, which is unusual for me, because I'm usually upbeat and pretty positive, but uh, this had gone on for weeks and weeks turned into months and I was uh, crying all the time, um, never in front of other people, always by myself. And these three things combined to really wreck uh, my physical and mental well-being. And I was subsequently diagnosed with uh, major depression when I was 40. I think your willingness to tell your story and get to a diagnosis also led you to take some pretty substantial, and at the time, very brave measures to get yourself well. And I think it's important for listeners, especially people that are that are feeling these symptoms silently, to, to understand what you had to do to get well, and then where we can talk about what you've done for the rest of the mental health community. I think the biggest things, uh, especially in the beginning, that uh, helped put the brakes on my depression were a really good relationship with a psychologist where I could talk through uh, what I was experiencing because 
as a man, a tr- I grew up in a traditional male family. I, I was, you know, taught never to talk about your feelings, never to show any signs of weakness. And, you know, that's even compounded further uh, being a litigator in the, in the legal world. So I had to unwind all that, and uh, I did that with a psychologist. Second, I think, was um, medication. Uh, for me, it was antidepressant medication. I'm still on antidepressant medication. And I think what I've learned is that, you know, depression is an illness. Uh, it certainly is. And it's something that for many people, not all, needs medication, you know, medical intervention uh, to reestablish a balance with brain chemistry. And the third thing that really uh, came out of my journey, I guess, is the formation of a depression support group for lawyers in my community. And that started about 12 years ago. And I wanted to find a way uh, to connect people who were going through this experience as lawyers. So we created the group. I created the group. 12 years ago, it meets every week and has done so for the past 12 years. So there's, there has to be over 500 meetings that have happened. And uh, everybody there, there's only two prerequisites that you're a lawyer and that you suffer with uh, anxiety or depression or some combination. They're all confidential and it's never been a problem in all the years we've had it. So that's, um, there's a lot to unpack with what you just said in about the last two minutes. And I think one of the things is the fact that you actually went to clinicians to get both therapeutic guidance and to get medical guidance. And, you know, it's been interesting as we've decoded some of the writing and literature on mental health issues and substance abuse issues in the legal profession, that there isn't or doesn't seem to be as an acute a focus on um, clinical outreach is, is the way I'll phrase it. There's been a lot of talk about wellness programs and reducing stress in other ways, but I'd like you to, to really kind of explore with me. And from my own personal experience, without the intervention of clinicians, I don't think I personally could have gotten to a point of wellness. I want you to just talk about how vital it was to have a clinical team um, support your 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 recovery and your ability to regain function. Sure. Well, really, you know, there's many aspects to recovery, but I think you put it well that from a clinical perspective, I clearly was in need of treatment. Uh, you know, exercising and uh, you know, you know, eating correctly were not going to do the trick. I needed both a psychologist and I needed medication to bring me back to life, so to speak. And without those things, I wasn't going to get better. No well-being program, no stress management program was going to get me back up on my feet. And I think that one of the things we have to keep clear, you know, my sense of it is, is on one side, you know, unhappiness, discontent, malaise that all too many lawyers feel, uh, no matter what their practice is, what, what, no matter what practice the, the, they're in. Separate from that are the more uh, medical issues, the more, uh, I think, uh, issues that are the 500-pound gorillas in the room, 
which would be depression and, and anxiety. And we really have to address both of them. Uh, certainly well-being is a good thing to address. I think it contributes to overall well-being. But I think we haven't addressed enough and how to, how to really substantially fix the problem when it comes to depression and anxiety uh, and involving the clinical uh, aspect of it, cl clinical intervention. Uh, so I think sometimes they're conflated, uh, well-being and uh, mental health, mental illness. All those things are kind of mushed together, but they're really distinct issues and they really call for distinct uh, uh, action steps. So the dichotomy I always use is there are elements of depression and anxiety that are situationally induced, perhaps by the stress yes. of a job, perhaps by the behavior of a boss. And then there is depression and anxiety that is actually the function of a biological illness. One of the questions I have for you as it relates to the support group that you created and that has developed definitely longevity, which is a real accomplishment, 12 years, 500 plus meetings of lawyers who don't tend to want to be public coming to a support group is, is, is amazing. Is how do you how do you blend the benefits of the support group with maybe helping lawyers who need, in addition to a support group, a clinical pathway? How, do, how does that all tie together? Because mm -hmm. to me, it's fascinating that you have a support group, but then how does it tie to the bigger picture if some lawyers need more than that kind of environment to recover? Absolutely. Well, the way it happens, it does so in concert with our my local bar association. We have a bar foundation, which is a not-for-profit, which is funded uh, through lawyers' dues, which gives money and awards money to lawyers in distress, whether it be from alcoholism, drug addiction, mental health, and will pay for things such as therapy, hospitalizations, so on and so forth. One of the, the foundation and the bar association employ a psychotherapist, an MSW, and she attends every one of our meetings, uh, not as a therapist, uh, though she is that. She's more of a facilitator to keep the conversation moving. And the second thing she does, she's a liaison between, uh, she's really a resource person for people in the group who need more help above and beyond what a support group can provide. She'll give referrals to uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, perhaps uh, there's a, a medical issue in the walls uh, that needs to be addressed. So you really need everybody, you really need a, a bunch of people, a teamwork of people uh, all working together to make it all work. Because I think that that's a great point you make, Mark, is that uh, for some people, you know, a support group may be all they need. You know, maybe they're, they, they've got a lot of other supports through their family or exercise or whatever. But for many people who have more of a chronic depression, who live with it and probably will live with it most of their lives, they most certainly uh, are usually going to need uh, outside clinical intervention. And that's where uh, a good uh, good liaison like we have comes into, uh, comes really comes into help. When you started this support group, mm -hmm. were there many other models 
like that out there, or were you really one of the earliest sort of incantations of a, a, a lawyers with depression support right. group? Well, we were, I think there was one group before us in Texas uh, by like a year or two. But other than knowing that they existed, uh, I don't know anything more than that. I know we're the only uh, committee, uh, we're the first, first of its kind in the country 12 years ago, and it, it was called the Committee to Assist Lawyers with Depression in Erie County, which is the county I live in. So it's a committee specifically devoted to lawyers and depression, and through that committee, we not only run the support group, uh, we put on CLEs, um, you know, on different mental health topics in, the, in our legal community. So we do more than just the support group, but certainly the support group is our central uh, mission. So this is really sort of an integrated effort between Bar Association, the Bar Foundation, the mental health community, and the support group. It's all sort of independent, if, I, if I've heard you correctly. Yeah, that's co exactly correct. And they each have a role to play. And, you know, the, the, the foundation kicks in when somebody, for because of their mental health uh, problems, maybe can't work for a period of time, or they need some assistance in uh, hospitalization that isn't covered by their insurance, or not completely. So, you got to have the dollars and cents kick in when needed. Uh, and But, you know, without the support group, uh, none of this happens. And I think uh, when I started it, uh, I did because I, I, I found a real need for it. I, you know, the thing is, and Mark, you know, that depression and anxiety are very, very lonely conditions. Um, uh, the pain of depression uh, is a unique kind of suffering uh, because a lot of people, you know, as many, there's millions of people with depression, but there's even more people who've never experienced it, at least in a clinical sense. So you, you can feel very alone in the experience of depression, and you may experience some form of stigma, which is a big problem in the legal profession because, you know, lawyers are taught to be problem solvers. You know, I think society has an image of lawyers that often isn't true. You know, they're all like, um, you know, successful, powerful people earning a gazillion dollars. Uh, when in fact, many lawyers are just average working people, uh, you know, maybe a bit better than the average middle class person uh, in the sense of income potential, but they have all the same problems and worries and, and concerns. And I think that uh, lawyers are very uh, tentative and loath to disclose that they have a mental health disorder in fear of what their clients may do. Maybe their clients would fire them in terms of what their firm may do. Maybe the firm, if not firing them, may pass them over for a partnership or, uh, you know, take work away from them. So stigma is a big issue. And I think what a support group does it goes right at the heart of stigma. I think that one of the keys to to addressing this issue is to normalize the issue. And and I've talked to yes. you at length and clinicians at length, and to normalize this issue so that 
those of us and those of you out there listening and those of you out there that guide people who may be having these problems know is that by being able to share what you're feeling and not feel isolated is, is, is a crucial step to getting well. Absolutely, Mark. You know, the, the way I like to think about it is, you know, uh, maybe you have a psychologist. Many people don't even have that. But say that they do, at best they see them once a week for an hour. That's four hours a month. And if they have a psychiatrist who distributes medication, that might be a half hour a month. So that's four and a half hours of care and treatment for what can be a devastating condition. It isn't enough support. It isn't enough uh, caring and concern. So really uh, what happens is the support group fills in that crucial missing piece and provides a sense of community. Uh, community itself, uh, you know, the idea of not feeling alone itself is healing uh, physiologically on many levels. And uh, it's a place where people can feel safe. They don't have to feel ashamed. Uh, they can get ideas and resources from other group members. Uh, so it's a powerful experience. And I, one thing I think uh, this can't, this conversation, the national conversation where mental health and well-being has to go in, is a formation uh, on a really, uh, you know, a real dedicated uh, strategy of the formation of many more um, support groups in bar communities across the country. Do you think? I guess I have a I have a couple of questions uh, uh, before I move off the support group. Uh, the first question is. Whose idea was it to embed a mental health professional into the support group as a facilitator and as a resource? Because I think that's a brilliant idea and it's probably something that's made your support group more effective than it would have otherwise been. I think that's right. And it was really the idea of the Bar Foundation, the Bar Association, you know, it was not my idea. Uh, so, they were the ones who came up with it because they saw the need that might happen, uh, that might arise if somebody needs uh, financial assistance or clinical assistance. You know, so two things that are beyond what I'm capable of doing or the rest of the people in the group. So that, that's why it's such an important role. It seems like for any organization or, or a group of, of stakeholders such as bar associations, um, local and state and, and, and county level, that finding a mental health prof professional to embed with a support group, it, it should probably raise, rise to the level of a best practice from, from what, we, what I've gleaned from our conversations at least. I think that's a great way of putting it, uh, Mark, to be honest. I think uh, I never thought of it that way, but best practice, I think, is dead on because I think it's such an integral part of a successful formula uh, for the creation of a support group and it, and it working uh, and it being sustainable. Uh, I've been asked by different bar associations around the country, um, why does uh, the group in Buffalo, how has it gone on so long for 12 years? And I think it clearly fills a need, number one. Number two, you have to have one or two people 
committed to it for the long haul to keeping it going. So in the beginning, it was me. So I was going to show up every Thursday at 1230, whether there was one person who came or 20 people who came. And, you know, I've been doing that for 12 years now. And uh, we have other people involved who, if you know, I'm not there, they're there. They're at the meeting. So I think that you got to think about the nuts and bolts of how is it going to be constituted, the group, and how is it going to be sustainable. Those are those are really great points, which is that you need passionate people who will commit. Yes. And over time, you need to build a community of passionate people who can have the bandwidth to sustain the the function. And it seems that's like that's exactly one thing correct. you've been. That's one thing you've been very successful is growing what I would call the core passion providers so that that, that, that group doesn't sort of winnow on the vine because of people's schedules and timing and, and external events, that there's always a consistent core group of people who will make sure that the support group can function. You know, and that's exactly correct. And if, if for any reason I'm not there, the the psychotherapist is always there. The liaison person is always there. And the other thing that's important to this formula when we think about um, sustainability is that I I am always writing, and I love writing. You know, I don't have a lot of hobbies with bowling or golf, so I, I like writing. And uh, I think you have to be out front in your local bar community uh, with its publications. Uh, we have a huge ad in our um, our monthly bar bulletin and online talking about the support group, where it is, and that it's confidential. And I also write articles for the, the bulletin about what depression is, uh, how does the support group even work? Uh, and then I also write on my website, lawyerswithdepression.com, uh, about support groups and why they're so uh, helpful. Uh, you know, to me, it's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And uh, I say that not only because of the joy of helping other people, but because I've felt uh, so healed uh, in the process. Sometimes the only thing that will work for me in a, in a week sometimes is going to the support group and, uh, you know, just getting off my chest all the, the things that are triggering my depression. Well, I definitely emphasize with that because I can tell you starting this podcast and Major Lindsay's willingness to take a thought leadership role on mental wellness in the legal profession has um, done enormous things for my spirits and sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. So I, I totally emphasize, you, you know, what, how you're feeling and what you get from this. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious to know whether or not the support group has given rise to sort of what I would call extracurricular community bonding. Like, have have people sort of organically become friends and and informally sort of develop kind of sub sub support groups or you know um, ways of bonding in which there's beyond the support group they're reinforcing each other's wellness and 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 being there for each other. You know, it's happened organically. Uh, there's nothing structured in that process and I think that uh, support group members get together uh, outside most commonly for coffee that's the most uh, common thing 
But uh, then there are uh, events. Uh, for example, I I, I won an, an award uh, in my community, a mental health award, and I invited the whole support group to the award, and they sat at a big table, all of them, and I accepted the the award on in their behalf. Um, so, you know. Yes, things go on outside the support group, and sometimes it's not even a meeting in person. It might be an email exchange or phone call when someone can't wait to that uh, Friday meeting. They need a little bit of boost before then. And all the group members, uh, there are people who've been in the group seven years, uh, you know, two years. Uh, we had a young lawyer join who's been there now three months. He was just diagnosed. So we're all different parts of the journey, but I, I think that's what makes a true community, you know, Mark? That's a great point. A support group doesn't have to be just a weekly meeting. It can be the nucleus of a community. And I think what you've done by helping create a community in, in Western New York is is a really remarkable testament to uh, your commitment and to the commitment of the Bar Association and the lawyers in Buffalo um, to really focus on this important topic. Can I switch gears for a moment, if, if, you're, mm -hmm. if you're willing to stay on the line a bit? Yes. There is, I think, a, a fear of being outed if you suffer from mental illness. Yes. And, and I, I know that, you know, it's, it's, it's very personal in your story, but can you share some of the sort of the stigma you you experienced when you sort of revealed your condition to your own partners who you had known for years. I mean, you told a very compelling story in one of your articles about how the firm responded. Yeah, I had uh, three partners at the time, all of whom I'd known for 20 years. And uh, after being diagnosed with major depression, I had to uh, tell them uh, what was going on. Uh, and I'd tell them I had to take time off from work. Uh, my doctor recommended like three months. And, uh, you know, I, I called a meeting and I started to tell them. And, uh, you know, to be honest, it was uh, my voice was quaking. Uh, I was trying to hold it together. I felt ashamed uh, about it. Um, and they listened, and but they all different reactions. and. The first partner was really angry at me and um, said, you know, what are you talking about? You know, you have a great life, a great job, your family, you know, just go on a vacation. You know, what? snap out of it. What's wrong with you? Don't you see how good of it, good life you have? And I think um, it hurt. It hurt a lot when he said that, and I didn't expect it. And um, subtext was uh, that I was ungrateful, I guess, that if only I had, you know, counted my blessings, I wouldn't be feeling depressed. And I think that's a common reaction uh, amongst people. Uh, they, I think primarily because not that they're evil, they're evil spirited in making those comments, but largely it's a result of ignorance. You know, people just don't have any reference point for what depression is, that it's an illness, and how painful it is. 
So he, he, he just had no idea. The other partner, uh, reaction, his reaction was completely different. He was kind of slightly smiling and nodding as I was talking. And he said, Dan, this is just, you know, a blip on the screen. You'll be back up and running before you know it. And I think his approach was um, minimizing the problem, you know, just saying this is not really anything very serious, even though it was deadly serious. And my words and my tone, uh, you know, really underscored that. But he wasn't really listening. He was half listening, and he kind of, in a way, dismissed it and minimized it. And the third partner was completely silent. You know, just said nothing. He sat there looking down at the floor and listened. In a lot of ways, that's the most painful thing because I had no idea what he was thinking. He didn't offer any words of encouragement or uh, support. And I think that hurts, too, most of all. And um, so, you know, looking back on it, I think what I did not know is you know, they were all depending on me financially. I was the managing partner. I was a big rainmaker. So I just thought, gee, I'm going to tell them this, that I'm, I have an illness, and they're going to say, oh, okay, we hope you get better. Uh, we'll take care of things while you're gone. They would have reacted that way if I said I had cancer or, you know, a heart attack. Uh, that's what my psychiatrist told me at the time. This is an illness. Just tell them like it's an illness. Uh, but it's a lot more than that. It's a very loaded word, uh, mental illness or depression or anxiety. And I, But I do think on the positive front, we've come a long way uh, in the past 20 years since I was first diagnosed. So do you hear similar stories or do you hear stories where there's a better narrative as you work with lawyers across the country and as you talk and speak? Well, that's a good. It's it's a mixed bag, Mark. You know, you 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 know. I I mean, there's still <laughs> there's still something clearly rotten in Denmark when you and you have uh, these studies showing eye popping rates and mental health problems. You know, for for lawyers, that twenty eight percent of those surveyed said within the last twelve months they'd had a problem with depression. You know, it's four times that the national rate uh, that you'd find in the general population. So we have a lot of lawyers out there with a lot of mental health problems and concerns. Now, are those lawyers getting help and getting healthy? Some are and some aren't. Some firms are very progressive uh, and are uh, heeding the call and recommendations of the task force report, and that's we've seen a lot of that in the paper. But I think. I think that it's uh, it's a small. I mean, percentage-wise, it's a small handful of firms that are that are doing that and taking the lead. Um, there's a new paper coming out. Uh, I, I don't know if it's been published yet in, in a journal. It's a journal article uh, making the financial case uh, for lawyer uh, mental health, and it, it it assembles all the financial reasons why law firms should be addressing this, why, why the legal profession should be. And it's the same kind of arguments we see in the corporate world with, you know, uh, Procter & Gamble or Johnson & Johnson. They know that mental health problems are costing them a ton of money. It's over 
$200 billion a year in lost productivity, absenteeism, disability claims are attributable to mental health problems in the workplace. Wow. That's a stunning so, number. Yeah, it, it is. They know that eight hours of productivity a week is lost due to depression. So you're there, right? You're there in the law office, but you're not productive. And that was certainly my experience. You know, I, I was terrified of not showing up to work and people wondering where I was. I was already hiding a, a terrible secret, you know, that I had depression, I was mentally ill, and I was struggling to keep my head afloat. So, but I was there, but I wasn't productive. And I think you were there, true. but you weren't there. Correct. Correct. They have a funny, uh, funny word for it called presentism uh, in the psychological literature. Uh, but that it, it was 100% true uh, for me. So the task force says law firms should, and the legal community should address this because first it's the right thing to do. But I think what we're seeing now is an argument, a very powerful argument that it it makes financial good business sense to do the to do the right thing. Well, all too often that is the tipping point or the catalyst for action when you yes. can make a business case. Whether that's right or wrong, it's just a reality. And, and I think it's encouraging that the legal profession is beginning to borrow from the corporate world to understand just how devastating uh, those that suffer from mental illness, the impact they can have on, on the, you know, efficacy of the organization and, 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 and that the cost benefits of being, getting treatment and creating support systems far outweighs the, 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 the monetary cost of those programs. You said something a while ago, not a while ago, because it was only really a few minutes ago, <laughs> with respect to your own story and the partner who, who sort of smiled and, 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 and didn't take this serious. Mm -hmm. And your, your, your kind of description of it was it was deadly serious. And perhaps for the law firm leaders out there and the legal department leaders out there, maybe that's a great way for us to close is that by creating or not promoting an atmosphere or an environment where people can um, admit and get help for mental illness, it's literally deadly serious. Well, that's true. We know uh, nationally that there are about uh, thirty to 40,000 suicides per year, most of those attributable to depression. Uh, more people die by suicide every, every year in this country than by handguns. So it's a, it's, it's a deadly, deadly condition. And uh, depression untreated often leads or can lead to suicide. Now, and, and, and as I understand it, the legal profession is one of the deadliest professions. That's correct. Correct. It's uh, ranked in the top three as far as uh, occupational hazards uh, in terms of death by suicide. I believe it's number two or three. So you have a perfect storm, really, of all these things going on to create a situation where suicide uh, becomes more likely. Uh, the national study uh, in 2016 of 13,000 lawyers that we've been talking about 
found that about 10% of lawyers uh, had, had suicidal thoughts or ideations in the, in, the, in the past year. That's about five times the rate found in the general population. So you have a lot of lawyers out there, you know, 10% of them, okay, that's 130,000 lawyers in America who have had thoughts of killing themselves. And these are people who are usually struggling with depression or depression and anxiety, or and you could have some people self-medicating with problematic drinking. But the point is, the bottom line is that these conditions can be deadly. And the other idea is that when you address these uh, problems in the workplace, you're investing in your people, you're investing in your attorneys. I tell big firm uh, managing partners, listen, you should you should tout that you're you're doing this, that you have a mental health a mental health well-being policy. You should use that in your recruitment strategy. You should use it in your retention strategy, because who doesn't want this, right? Who doesn't want to be taken seriously, to be heard, when you have a a, a health problem of any kind, let alone a mental health problem? Well, I think that is an enormously wise observation. And, and Dan, I, I think on behalf of the folks that have experienced mental illness, you know, in, in the legal profession, you're owed a big thank you for your, you know, your willingness to be vulnerable and your candor and your leadership on this topic. And I will say, as, as I said a, a while ago, this doing this podcast for me is a, a labor of love and, um, I'm grateful that it brought us together as friends, and I'm very grateful that you've um, come forward to be one of my initial <laughs> guests on the podcast. It, it's been a pleasure having you, and, um, you know, Western New Yorkers are just the best people, let's face it. <laughs> they are. Well, you know, Mark, thanks for having me, and you're one of the new champions in this arena, and keep on going. This has been Erasing the Stigma, Conversations on Mental Health in the Legal Professions. Today's guest was Stan Lukasik, a tireless advocate for mental wellness and founders of one of the first legal lawyers for depression support groups in the country. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to talking to you again. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com. <laughs>